You're listening to We're All All Right, the show that explores all the reasons we have to be hopeful, even joyful, about humanity in our world today, despite what we see in the headlines. I'm your host, Phyllis Wilson. So I'd love to start with a couple vignettes, little stories that really capture my relationship with education and with schooling. One day in fifth grade, after a spelling bee that went horribly wrong, horribly wrong because I came in second, after being wrongly accused by the winner and her friends of spelling the word 13 wrong, of course it has two E's. Of course I said two E's. And the teacher ultimately taking her word for it. I walked out. As the class was getting back to their desks and the teacher was presumably preparing for another lesson, I went to my cubby, gathered my things, and walked right out the door. Out of the classroom, then out of the school building, then across the parking lot, then all the way home, a mile and a half, each step more exhilarating than the last. I was free. Nobody puts baby Phyllis in a corner or accuses her of a spelling mistake, as it were. I was the most exuberant I've ever felt in my life up to that point, walking home from school that day. Because if this was school, I thought, I was having no part of it. Cut to some years later, I got a master's in education and became a teacher in public schools, teaching kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. But the idea of freedom and the idea of choosing my own path, of directing my own, of directing one's own education, that's been there since that day I walked out of fifth grade. So when an opportunity came up for me to interview at a free school, to explain what a free school is for those who don't know, free schools are based on the idea that children's education should be self-directed with the adults and teachers acting as guides and mentors. So I was excited to be offered an interview at a free school where I could be one of those guides and give children the opportunity that I didn't have as a young kid. Well, when I tell you that this was the worst job interview on the planet, well, maybe that's an exaggeration. When I tell you it was the worst job interview that I've ever had, and yes, those were capital letters that you heard on every word, I won't get into all the details, but let's start with this. I was interviewed by no fewer than 15 people simultaneously. We sat in a circle. At least six of those 15 people were children ranging in age from, I would say, about 9 to 17 or 18. It was utter chaos for a number of reasons, including the interview starting at least an hour late, people walking in and out throughout the interview, some outright expressing their confusion as to why they were even invited into this meeting, not even knowing it was an interview, There were side conversations going on throughout that had absolutely nothing to do with me. There were people reading books, editing papers, correcting homework, I don't know. Most of them seemed unsure who I was or why I was even there in the first place. The worst part was the most memorable part. 
a 15, 16-year-old girl with a massive chip on her shoulder for who knows what, every question that she asked me came with this gotcha vibe. And every answer that I gave her elicited an eye roll or a snicker or a psh, that sound. In fact, that was the vibe that I got from every question and my every answer. The general sense that my past experience with public education, both as a student and as a teacher, was being held against me. No matter how much I supported and even championed their mission, it got to the point fairly quickly in the interview that I myself was wondering, why am I here? I left that interview feeling deflated, confused, so disappointed in the experience that I had imagined in my mind would be this incredibly welcoming community where all perspectives were welcomed and invited, that people were in fact happy to be there, talking and learning and sharing about things that really mattered. And it ended up being the opposite. People so married to their own perceptions, to this dogma of educational freedom, that they were, in fact, imprisoned by it. With homeschooling and homeschool collectives and free schoolers and unschoolers on the rise over the last two decades, but even more so since the beginning of the pandemic, I'm thinking about the effect of personal choice on the collective, on all of us, particularly when it comes to personal choice regarding institutions and systems that are purportedly designed for the collective, for all of us, like public schools and public education. Why education specifically? because I think that we all have a sense that education is what gives us or is what's supposed to give us choice, allows us the freedom to make choices. And freedom is kind of what being human is all about, right? No wonder education is always such a hot button issue. So here's the question I'm exploring. Do we on an individual or family-by-family basis, keep exiting the system until there's no system left? Or is there a better way? A way that feels more empowering? A way that feels like change is actually happening? So let me give you a little five-minute history of public education and some of its alternatives. First, why did we create public schools here in the U.S. to begin with? Well, historians will generally cite the same handful of ideas or ideals upon which public schools were built. They include social stability and structure. Remember that before this, it was really only the children of wealthy families who had access to education. So giving all children access and the same access to education, was a way to stabilize society, essentially to keep class warfare at a minimum. Another ideal was the teaching of civic responsibility. 
Another was economic efficiency, economic prosperity. The idea is that our investment in public schools through our tax money would come back to us many, many, many times over through an educated population. And finally, there's the loftiest ideal of all, and that is the notion that knowledge equals freedom. And I say lofty, yet I feel like we all have a sense that that's true. As you likely know, education, or more specifically schooling, is compulsory here in the U.S. So why is that? Skeptics will say, and I can certainly see this perspective, that compulsory education laws exist to effectively keep the machine running, to be sure that we're producing a big enough labor force and or enough quote-unquote patriots to defend the nation's ideals, enough so that we can actually consider ourselves a nation of ideals worth defending. Yet a quick Google search will tell you that one of the most important reasons for compulsory education laws was actually to protect children from exploitation for their labor. Child labor was kind of a big problem back in the day. So it's not all bad, right? You know, when we think of education reform, we tend to frame public schools in this skeptical sense, this idea that all it is is about keeping the machine running, producing a labor force. But these ideas of social stability, giving people equal access to education, of teaching civic responsibility, and investing in our education systems and reaping the benefits of that, the very idea that knowledge equals freedom, and of course, keeping children out of forced labor, these are ideas that I think we can all get behind, right? So then, what about homeschooling and this idea of unschooling or free schooling? What was so bad about what was happening in schools or about the ideas that framed public education that made people want to start to exit? From one perspective, we can consider homeschooling as we know it to have really started in the 1970s. John Holt is widely considered the founder of the modern homeschooling movement, particularly the modern secular homeschooling movement. His main argument was that children, and actually all of us, learn best by simply living, and in fact that the school environment actually stifles learning. Dr. Raymond Moore, on the other hand, is credited with the prolification of homeschooling among Christian families. While his original critique of homeschooling was not based in religion or the lack thereof in public schools, he was concerned about the effects of structured education on very young children. And it was his ties to his own religious community that greatly amplified the advocacy of homeschooling among Christians. There's another historical perspective on homeschooling that's really worth noting, and that is that education at home or outside of the home via collectives or free schools actually has its roots in the lives of enslaved people. 
With no access to schools and in the face of laws that specifically prohibited reading and writing by enslaved people and later even by emancipated people, side note, not just in the South. In 1832, the state of Connecticut actually banned a school that was started by former slaves and created for black girls. And after the ban, the locals set the school on fire. I digress. Sort of. So with no access to schools and with reading and writing outlawed, enslaved and formerly enslaved people began to teach themselves and their children and their extended families and communities. And the post-emancipation years actually saw the establishment of a formal education system by formerly enslaved people for their heirs. And later in the Jim Crow segregationist era, so-called freedom schools were created to teach young black people about their history as a way of contextualizing, illuminating, and ultimately resisting harmful segregationist practices. To this day, homeschooling is a rapidly growing movement among black and brown families. Hey, while I have you, I wanted to tell you more about that thing I do when I'm not podcasting, and that is coaching. All this curiosity and joy you hear me bring to this podcast, that's me bringing all of myself to everything that I do and discovering more about myself every step of the way. And that's exactly what I do when I'm coaching my clients. If you're an experienced coach, trainer, or consultant who wants to bring more of yourself to the work you do, expand your skill and capacity to serve much higher level clients, and create the kind of time freedom that allows you to pursue everything you're passionate about and become more and more of you, I'd love for you to contact me. Head on over to phyllis.wilson.pw and click on Talk to Phyllis. Join me in a little thought experiment, if you would. This is where we consider an extreme situation, something that's highly unlikely to happen as a way of getting right to the very heart of the issue. So, let's say, for experimental sake, the vast, vast majority of families pull their children out of public schools. Let's say in January, after the holiday break, almost nobody goes back. For context, by the way, 90% of school-aged children in the U.S. attend public schools. That's nearly 51 million people. So let's go radical and say that that number drops to 10% attending public school as of January. Would we even have an education system? How would it be paid for? Who would actually be willing to pay for it? Who or what would run the education system or oversee it? And whom would it be for? Who are the last 10%? Are they holdouts clinging to the American ideal of public education? But if there is no system, what would they actually be holding out for? Or would it be those who have little to no choice based on their circumstances, but to send their children to public schools? Those circumstances, which are largely based on other systems like labor and wages and health care, etc., in addition 
to the education system. I know what you're thinking. This scenario would never, ever happen because of the poverty slash wealth disparity, which is probably true. And I think we've just answered the question about that last 10% remaining, haven't we? The other question is then, does personal choice in education and elsewhere really give us freedom, whether in our own homes or when coming together in groups such as in free schools and unschool collectives? Protocols must be created, right? Rules, norms, standards must be created and agreed to and followed, yes? Sure, they're going to be different from the rules and protocols and standards and practices in public schools, but they are rules and standards and practices nonetheless. What happens then to personal choice? How is this any different from traditional schools? Do free schools and the like, this melding of the personal with the collective, have the right idea, my interview notwithstanding, of course? Or are they exacerbating the challenges we have with creating big change to systems like education? Here's the good news. Can I just tell you that I let out a big yes, and I did a little dance, when I read about homeschooling, or better said, the pursuit of education, among enslaved and formerly enslaved people some 250, 300 years ago, the human spirit will always and has always pursued freedom. It is in our very nature. We will free ourselves from every circumstance until no subjugating or oppressive circumstances remain, and then we'll keep going. And not only that, we'll pursue freedom, not just for ourselves or for our children, but for each other and each other's children and their children and so on. So, have we figured out education after 250 years? No. Is our education system sufficient? Hard no. Is homeschooling or non-traditional education the answer? highly unlikely. What about busing or lottery systems for the best schools within a district? Or charter schools? Or privatization? Or the takeover of struggling public schools by private interests or corporations? Are these the solutions? Again, highly unlikely. They've been tried, with little to no wide-scale success. But, Are people trying in earnest, and have people tried in earnest to do the best they can, to teach, to expand minds, gain knowledge, see from multitudes of perspectives, and to use all of that gathering wisdom to help others in their communities and across the globe? Hell yeah, they have. And they are, it turns out, we always have. And that's fantastic news. The global pandemic has brought a lot to light in terms of the gaps and flaws in our education system and many, many other systems. And that, to me, is good news too. Why? 
because these issues are no longer other people's issues. They belong to all of us. And as we're seeing, and as history shows, we're on it. We're making it right. Because freedom is for all of us. So where do we go from here? What can you, what can I actually do about education that hasn't already been tried and largely failed? Well, I propose that we start by asking different questions. My suggestion, what is the purpose of education now? in our radically changed and rapidly changing world today. And in that spirit, I'd like to share some resources. Let's call them resources for doing the best we can. Some of these are articles that have gone into the making of this episode. They're also resources for the ideas and concepts that are shaping our national conversation about education, where it's come from, and perhaps more importantly, where it's going. And even if you don't have children, full disclosure, I don't, or even if you're not a teacher or have a direct link to public education, other than our tax dollars, of course, which is something I think many of us forget, I believe we all have a sense that when we talk about education, what we're really talking about is how we are passing on our systems of thinking, our ways of being, our ways of doing, our norms, our culture, the way we understand one another, and the way that we collectively understand, move toward, and create freedom itself. So with that said, here are a few books and articles, recommendations for you to dive into at your leisure and at your pleasure, to start to get your mind around answering the question for yourself. What is the purpose of education in today's world? You'll find links to all of these in the show notes. First, I'm going to share a couple of articles about school funding and school choice and the movement to privatize public education, one for and one against, one from the left end of the political spectrum and one from the right. The reason I'm choosing both of these is not simply because of their opposing political leanings, but because both of them are very well-researched articles with lots of historical facts included and with extensive citations for further research, should going down the rabbit hole be your kind of thing. It's my kind of thing as well. The first is Death by a Thousand Cuts. The Story of Privatizing Public Education in the USA by Joanne Barkin. This article wasn't originally published in the Washington Post, but it was shared in the Post, and the reason I'm including that link specifically is the very extensive resource list that is included with the article, along with clickable links for your rabbit hole diving pleasure. The other, from the right-leaning side, is called The Case for Choice in Schooling, Restoring Parental Control of Education, by Matthew J. Brulette. This is more of a research study than an article. It's from a nonprofit educational research institute and presents, again, very thoroughly researched argument for privatization of education. The last few resources I wanted to share are around homeschooling or 
the alternative education movement more specifically. The first is called Learning All the Time. It's by John Holt, whom I mentioned earlier in the episode. Though it was published only about 30 plus years ago in 1989, this and the next book I'll mention, published just a couple years later, are considered classics in homeschooling, particularly unschooling circles. Whether you're interested in homeschooling or not, what I love about learning all the time is Holt's deep appreciation and the playful way he writes about children's natural curiosity, natural ways of being in the world. And that's something I feel like we can all learn from. Speaking of freedom, right? The other book has a dystopian title, but there it is. It's called Dumbing Us Down subtitled The Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Schooling, written by John Taylor Gatto. Remember I mentioned earlier the skeptic's view of compulsory schooling? This is a super deep dive into just that by a longtime and well-celebrated educator in public schools. And then finally, a fantastic and again well-researched article in The Atlantic from just a few years ago titled The Radical Self-Reliance of Black Homeschooling by Melissa D. Anderson. This is part profile of a black family, a mother and daughter, who are homeschooling, and part deep dive into the historical roots of black homeschooling and black education all the way back to the time of slavery. Despite, and I almost get a sense that because of, the obviously heavy and dark history the author brings forth in this article, there's almost an exuberance and celebration to her writing, certainly a hopefulness, particularly when she talks about and when she's speaking with the mother and the daughter at the center of her article, as well as the other families she interviewed. Kind of reminds me of a certain podcast. A celebration and a hope for humans, for all of us, in some dark and heavy times. Now, I would love to hear what you think. How has your experience of the education system informed your thinking and the choices you've made, or perhaps are making, around school? And what do you think is, or should be, the purpose of education today? You can find me and all episodes of this podcast at phyllis.wilson.pw and on Instagram at allrightpodcast. Finally, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode of We're All All Right.